traveling lately. I'm just excited to be back home. Uh, we've missed you guys a ton. Uh, big ups to our facility guys for getting this place nice and clean as they do each Sunday. And a sidewalk shoveled and plowed and salted. Grateful, grateful for you all. Man, it's a, it's a labor of love and we definitely appreciate it. Uh, we got some exciting things coming up here in the next few weeks. We got our potluck, like Jeremy said, on Wednesday. You guys got your Christmas costume ready for that yet? Uh, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to win a competition there. So uh, I'm still thinking through what it's going to look like. Yeah, the next week the kids are going to do great. The kids, service, kids program will be in both services, as Jeremy mentioned. And, um, man, this is a fantastic opportunity for you guys to get family, friends, neighbors. You've got to invite them on out because they'll come. They'll watch your kids. They'll watch your, your niece, your nephew, your grandchild, your friends, kids, whoever it is. And uh, people, it's on their radar, and they want to know about Christmas. Uh, speaking of Christmas, I mean, you ever go through Christmas pictures and see a picture of you opening a present from when you were a child? Or you see a toy and it just brings back some memories? I mean, you, you, can you think of that toy right now? I, I remember there's a picture of me and my brother holding these two Karate Kid toys. Uh, he had Mr. Miyagi and I had Daniel's son. And I, I remember that so vividly, opening that present, being thrilled, and you, know, you press the button, their leg kicks, you know. I, I remember opening Nintendo games, like not, not like... Not even like Super, like Nintendo, the original. And I remember being so excited about that. And so I see pictures of, of me as a kid or me and my brother's kids with, a, with our toys. Like for me, it's more than just a picture, isn't it? It starts bringing back memory. You start, start retracing, you know, backtracking some. And the more you backtrack with those kind of memories, the sweeter the memory gets. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that's what really is at the heart of Christmas. It's a call to backtrack. It's a call to retrace our steps to remember how we got here. And what we are doing in this series, we're retracing our spiritual steps to the Old Testament of the Bible. Last week, Jeremy talked about how from the very opening pages of the Bible, God gave a promise to send Jesus. And thousands of years later, he then showed us from John 1 how that promise has been fulfilled. Today, we're going to do some retracing as well and look at other parts of the Bible that help us understand our spiritual heritage. Jesus has come, church. He came. He came once. He's going to come again. And, you know, these, these beautiful prophecies of the Bible really do, do a number in, in helping us understand the faith. You know, we say Christianity is, is, a, is, a, is a, a belief that comes by faith. We must believe. But this is important for all of us. It is not to say, then, that Christianity, though, is absent of reason, in fact, and evidence. And this is crucial, because around Christmas time, people are asking questions about the validity of the Christian faith. And the truth of the matter is, there are compelling facts that lead us to believe what we believe, if you're a follower of Jesus. There are convincing proofs, there are confident evidences that we can have. And so, as I look for us today, some of us are at a place in our spiritual lives, maybe in our in our exploration of Christianity, looking for evidence to believe. Like, like, I'm looking for the facts. And I've talked to many people in these situations before. We're like, okay, why, why believe Christianity over against Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever it might be? And so you might be looking for evidence. And so I hope that today's evidence, you would see the compelling nature of that. Some of us are looking for confirmation to strengthen our faith. 
I know there's been times I've been battle-tested and wearied and worn down, even in my faith, where I wake up and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm struggling here, God. I'm battling unbelief. I'm battling different other kind of things. And I need, I need God to confirm and, and remind me of the truths of what we believe. And I hope today we'll do that for those who need that. And, and yet still there are others of you who say, I, I just want to grow deeper in my understanding so I can defend my faith. So I can give people this compelling, convincing evidence of why I have a confidence in Jesus and why Christmas for me means something far greater than presents and a tree. And so today we're going to look at some of this evidence. We're going we're gonna to backtrack. We're going to retrace our steps. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to see that God did the impossible to make the impossible possible. God did the impossible to make the impossible possible. And so I'm going to unpack that statement for us, and we're going to retrace our spiritual steps, not in the New Testament where Jesus comes on the scene, but we're going to look back at a prophecy that says he's coming on the scene. It's a prophecy which says that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew quotes that verse in Matthew chapter 1. But what I want us to see is, where was that verse first given? And why was it given? And why is that important for Christmas? You see, every Old Testament passage has a story, a context around it. So we're going to find ourselves in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, and that's on page 571 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Isaiah chapter 7. What I love about this passage is, man, it, it gets us into the thick of a story. And, and, and later in the story, God's going to drop that amazing prophecy on a number of people. But, man, we got to understand the tension that's going on so we can understand how significant it was when God said what he said. Isaiah chapter 7 comes after Isaiah was called as a prophet. He was a prophet, a follower of Jesus. Jesus, or a follower of God at the time, Jesus had not yet come on the scene. He was a prophet who received words from God, and he gave prophecies. Now, in the Bible, a prophecy is a message given from God to an individual about things that are going to come in the near or distant future. That's what prophets did in the Bible. They gave a message about near or distant, or sometimes both, near distant information that God had given to them. And here in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, Isaiah had just got his calling as a prophet. And now we're seeing him fulfill his calling by being a messenger of God to the king in his land, a king by the name of Ahaz. Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 and following. Would you follow along as I read here? In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Assyria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I'm going to pause there for you guys. So this is what's going on. God's kingdom of Israel, by this point, had been divided into two regions. The northern tribes became a nation called Israel, and the southern tribes became a nation called Judah. And each of the parts of the kingdom had their own king. 
And though they were all Israelites, Jewish people, they began to have animosity toward one another to the extent in which we see here the northern kingdom was making war against the southern kingdom. I mean, this is, this is family. And things got so dark in God's, among God's people that here the king of Israel starts getting a, a, a treaty with another king of Syria and say, hey, let's together go and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And we'll establish our own new king on there. Now, this is a big deal because this is what happened. God gave a promise to King David many generations before, saying from your family is going to come a king who's going to reign for eternity. And every time the throne was threatened, God's promises were, were questioned. Will God continue this? Will God give us his promise? And so there in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, a descendant of David, is afraid now. He's saying, man, these two armies are ready to wage war against us. And if we read in the other parts of the scriptures, in the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we see that they've already begun to wage war around nearby villages. And over 120,000 people had already been killed from the kingdom of Judah. And now they're ready to wage war against the capital city. And King Ahaz and the rest of God's people are shaking in their boots. Now you need to know something about King Ahaz. He, he, he inherited this political conflict. It was his dad's problem that now came to him. But Ahaz was no saint. In fact, he was one of the most wicked kings that Judah had ever seen. He worshipped idols, the kind of idols that told him, according to their customs, to sacrifice his own children in the fires. And so he made his own sons walk through fire and be burned to death to appease his new gods. And the sad thing is, God's people followed suit along their king's way of belief. And so, yes, the kingdom had problems coming to them. They were a wicked kingdom. The northern tribes were wicked. God's people had fully rebelled. And so this story is about a rebellious people and a ruthless enemy. And so here, we see that the people of Judah began to shake in their boots. They were afraid of what was going to happen. And God gives Isaiah a prophecy. And if you look at chapter 7, verse 4, he tells Isaiah, hey, go to the king, of, uh, king Ahaz and give him this message. And he said, say to him, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, these two nations. Verse 5, because Syria and Ephraim, that's the northern tribe of Israel, and the sons of Ramaliah had devised evil against you. They said to themselves, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in their midst. But then Isaiah says this in verse 7, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. God looks his king in the eye, and though he's wicked as anybody is wicked, God says, what they're saying isn't going to happen to you. Not, not just yet. Not just yet. He goes on to tell them there in verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, will be shattered from, the peop- from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. God's saying, their words aren't going to stand. I'm going to bring an end to them. And then he gives this stern warning to King Ahaz. He says in verse 9 at the end, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
God says, I'm going to bring them down. I'm going to take these other kingdoms down. And here's a warning to you. You're going to be firm in your faith in me. And if not, you won't be firm at all. This is God's message for King Ahaz, the wicked king. And now he's put to the test. He he has an opportunity now to say, where is his faith going to be? And so God tells him this challenge in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. God's saying, I want you to put me to the test right now, King Ahaz. I just told you, if you're firm in the faith, you'll be strong. But if you're weak, you'll be failing. So put me to the test and see if my words are true. Well, King Ahaz has a different plan in verse 12. You see, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that sounds very upright, doesn't it? Like, oh, no, I'm not going to test God. But the thing you got to understand here is this. King Ahaz wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. He hated the God of the Bible. And in fact, he wanted nothing to do with them to the extent in which, in his time of trouble, he reached out to another army asking for backup. And this other army is the kingdom of Assyria, the most, one of the most wicked nations in the world at the time. And so here King Ahaz is saying, God, I, I don't want your words right now. I've got my own plan in place, and things are going to work out. And then God says this, Hear then, verse 13, O house of David, people of Judah, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, Isaiah says, you're not willing to ask God for help. You're not willing to put your faith in God and your trust in him. Well, God will give you a sign. And mark my words, he will come through on his word. And this is the sign, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You should call his name Emmanuel. What God is saying here is this. You see, Ahaz, you've got a ruthless enemy knocking at your doorsteps. And here I, the God of this universe, am offering to come to your deliverance, but you are keeping me at bay. And God's saying, you know what? I've got a plan. I'm going to destroy a ruthless enemy, and I'm going to do it by the vir- a virgin giving birth to a child. And so, of course, God is giving a bigger picture here. He's saying, King Ahaz, you're, willing, you're not willing to trust me with this foe, but I tell you, there's a greater foe out there. And with a greater foe, there's need for a greater deliverer. And now God's pointing to something far greater than Ahaz had any clue about. Indeed, Ahaz would get rescued from these two armies, but the ones he put his trust in were the ones that ended up coming for his own people. His plans failed. And the question is, did God's plans fail? Did God come through on this promise 500 years before Jesus? Well, one thing I love, you ever watch football, and after a guy makes a big play, he's got a touchdown dance? You ever think about what yours would be when you see that? Like, have you ever scored a touchdown? See, these guys go out into the end zone in a football game after they score a touchdown, and they're dancing it out because they just came through big time. They just made everyone see how awesome what they did was, and they're going to dance it out to show what happened. 
to show everyone what took place. And so here in Isaiah 7:14, God is making a big play here. And in Matthew chapter 1, God's about to do his touchdown dance. Because God's saying, yes, there's an army around you, and yes, those foes are mighty and many, but I tell you, there's a greater foe, and I'm well aware of it. And just as I told Ahaz to trust me to deal with his enemies, and he failed to do that, I'm telling you to trust me to deal with your enemy, and now it's your choice whether or not you're going to trust me with it. And so God has a plan to fulfill this prophecy that he gave to Ahaz. And fast forward 500 years to page 807 in your Bible. Turn with me there to Matthew chapter 1. You see, the people of God began to wonder, what's with that promise of a child named Emmanuel, born of a virgin? God, where where is that promise you spoke of? When did that happen? And for 500 years, people said and longed for God to follow through on his promise. And that's why I love the song that we sang today. That hymn that says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It's a plea of God's people saying, God, send Emmanuel to come and ransom us, to save us, because we are captive O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. God, when are you going to fulfill that promise to save us from our foes? Well, enter Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. A virgin with child. Verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, and to say there, he mentioned that she was betrothed to him, which means she was engaged to him, but had a legal binding to the extent in which he could be considered her husband, though yet married. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And read this together with me, church. For he will save his people from their sins. Let's read that again. For he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Why? Because it means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Oh, how I love this story. How we see throughout God's people's lives in the Old Testament, them feeling this oppression from their enemies, and little did they know that there was a greater enemy that God had a plan to thwart. And I love how there Joseph is unsure whether or not to take Mary as his wife. Here they are, ready to get married, and she's pregnant. And Joseph's wondering, okay, what's going on here? Why did this happen, God? What's taking place? 
And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. He's going to break off the engagement saying, you know what, I don't want to humiliate Mary for being pregnant out of wedlock apart from me. So I'm going to divorce her quietly. And he considered these things before an angel came and visited him. What I love about the Christmas story is that it's not an easy story. It's not a smooth sailing kind of story. It's a story that has its roots from hundreds and thousands of years earlier. And it's a story that is difficult in the moment. A couple engaged to be married. A difficult decision this man has to make. All trying to figure out what's going on while God had a plan in the midst of it. And I know for us, man, our lives sometimes are just confusing, aren't they? We, we don't know what's going on. We have questions surrounding all that's taken place. And just what was true here in Matthew 1 is true in our lives. That like God is at work and has a plan. And his plan here in Matthew 1 is to bring about a child who would fulfill that promise 500 years earlier. And the angel tells Joseph, marry her. It's all from God. He has a plan. He says, and you will call his name Jesus. See, the name Jesus means that God will save. It's the name of Yeshua. And so even in the name of this child, Joseph is like, what's going on? And the angel tells him, for he will save his people from their sins. And so here we see the greater foe, the greater army, the greater problem that's facing all of us. And the problem is sin. Christmas is a story about God saving us from sin. And Jesus would come to do that very thing. He would save his people from their sins because his people could not save themselves. God would do the impossible to make the impossible possible. The impossible was making a virgin conceive. The impossible was to save wretched people like me and like you. And he made it possible through Jesus And all this was to fulfill God's word to King Ahaz 500 years earlier. I mentioned for us that this Christmas story is one that we have to retrace our steps. And as we retrace our steps, we see that there's a king in Israel who's prideful, who's got his own plan. And Christmas tells us to embrace God's plan. And I hope for some of us, this is, this is a wake-up call saying, man, God, have I been pursuing my own plans in my life? Am I going about my own things? When I think about this, ultimately what comes to my mind is whether or not I'm trusting God with the details of my lives. I realize in my actions, oftentimes, I look more like King Ahaz than I look like Joseph. I'm refusing to trust God because I don't pray. I'm refusing to walk by God because I'm not asking him for his wisdom. And a Christmas story says, will we trust in God and his plans for us? A Christmas story also reminds us that God fulfills his promises. I mean, this is compelling, church. For a word to be given about a virgin being with child, and then 500 years later, it coming to fruition. You see, the Bible is filled with prophecies that God has given that have been fulfilled in Jesus. And Christmas is us looking back, retracing our steps, and saying, wow, God, you did this. And there are people in our lives who are asking questions about the faith, and maybe you yourself are. And my hope is that this would strengthen you where you're at. 
You say, wow, God, you fulfilled your promise. Maybe for some of you, you're at a place in life where you are seeing the claims of Christianity, but you're unsure whether or not to believe them because you have more questions. I remember talking to a guy once where he mounted one question after the other. And as I gave him answer after answer, I finally told him, I said, you know what? Your problem with Christianity isn't that you are having a hard time having your questions answered. Your, que- your problem is you're refusing to surrender your life. You're refusing to believe. You're refusing to have faith in Jesus. Because the truths of Christianity are compelling. They're convincing. Jesus has come, and he has come to save us. And the Christmas story brings that in full circle. But another thing it does for us is it reminds us of the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I know there are times in our lives where we feel alone, oftentimes around the Christmas season. And the very heart of Christmas is you are not alone if you're a child of God. God is with you. And he's come to save you from your sin. People often ask me whether or not it's good to tell our kids about Santa Claus. If your kids believe in him, you might want to cover your ears at the moment. Cover their ears. But I, I, honestly, Santa Claus is on my naughty list. He's on my naughty list, which probably makes me on his naughty list. What Santa does is usurp God's gracious provisions. I don't want my kids thinking it gives God here by some guy who came down our chimney. I want our kids to see God's gift and say that was a fulfillment of God's promises. Santa didn't go into a manger born of a virgin. Santa didn't go to a cross to save me from my sin. Santa is not God with me. And so in Christmas, I want my children, I hope you want your children, and you want everyone to know this is about Jesus. It's not Santa, miss. It's Christmas. So he's on my naughty list. Jesus says, though our sin are as scarlet, he'll make up white as snow. He'll purge us whiter than snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, the question is, how did Jesus come and save his people from their sins? Well, it's the same message we talk about every week here at the brook. But it's a message that we need to remind ourselves of. The same Jesus lived a perfect life. The same Jesus went to the cross. And this same Jesus took our sin upon his shoulders, died and conquered death so that when we put our faith in him, we can live forever. And what's so beautiful about the book of Matthew, it starts out saying, God with us, and it closes with a statement, God with us. You see, in Matthew 28, this Emmanuel, this Jesus, after he had risen from the dead in Matthew 28, 20, He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And he says this, behold, I am with you always. God is with us. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this season. That our God would never leave or forsake us when our faith is in him. That the Emmanuel has come to save us, and he has come to walk with us through all of eternity 
Several weeks ago, my family and I went out and cut down our first Christmas tree together. We've never done that before. And so when you show up to these Christmas tree farms, there are literally thousands of Christmas trees. I learned that there are types of Christmas trees. Never even once crossed my mind. There are firs, there are spruces, there are pines. I'm like, a pine tree is a pine tree. I'm like, no, there's scotch pine and there's white pine. I'm like, this is news to me here. And so now we're doing some investigation about the kind of tree we're going to select. And so we're walking through this Christmas tree forest, and we're trying to get that perfect tree. And for us, the perfect tree had to be a certain height. It had to be a certain kind of fullness. It needed the right kind of branches to, to hold up our ornaments because we got like a 1,000 of those. And so we need to get the perfect tree. And you know what? The truth of the matter is everyone else around us is trying to get the perfect tree. So now you're jostling for position. You're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to claim a tree. Say, hey, hold on to that one. We're going to go over here. But stay, stay right there, you know? Because this is what we do. We are looking for the perfect tree. And so we found our perfect tree. We cut that thing down. I felt like I slayed a deer. I was bringing it down, pushed it over, looked at that tree like what, you know? Put it in the car, got home, and there our perfect tree is up, and we realize it's, it's actually not that perfect. It, had the, it has like these two really weird branches that curl up almost the height of the tree. We're like, should we, should we cut those down? And we're like, no, that's a, that's, that's a signature branch, you know? Where, where's the story going, right? No. This is how we choose. <laughs> this isn't how God chooses. God, God didn't send Emmanuel looking for perfection. He, he came and walked among us, and where some of us are spruces and firs, we're people from all walks of life, all ethnicity, Asian, black, white, Hispanic, and beyond. And we've all got different stories. But the common denominator is in this forest of people, there is not one that's perfect. And though we could appear to be such, we take a deeper look. We know there's no perfection in any of us. We have our signature branches in our lives. Our our imperfections are ever in front of us. And yet what God has done is walk on this forest, on this life, in this earth, and walk through our forests. And in his kindness, he chose us, not because we were perfect, but because he is Emmanuel, because he is fulfilling the promise he gave to Ahaz, the promise he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is one who has come, and God has done the impossible to make the impossible possible. Ultimately, to make the imperfect perfect. See, when Jesus went to the cross, his perfection was put on those who had put their faith in him. And our sin was put on his shoulders. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we know that we are children of God, not because of anything we have done, but because everything God has done. Our faith is compelling. And a lot of times, it's not the evidence we're looking for. It's the white flag we need to raise that we're refusing to raise. And just as King Ahaz in his arrogance says, God, I want nothing to do with you, church family, don't follow his steps. But say, no, God, I know I need you. 
There's more than two kingdoms knocking at my doorstep. There is sin in my heart, and I can't do anything about it. But God, I know Emmanuel has come. So as you retrace the steps of this Christmas story, remember God's gift, his son Jesus. For some, let that be the evidence and the reminder you need to put your faith in him. For others, let this be the confirmation you need to strengthen your weary faith. And for others, let this be the understanding you need to defend your faith this Christmas and to make much of Jesus who came down to walk among us. Let's pray, church. Oh, Father in heaven, our hearts resonate with the words, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom us, save us, save your captive Israel. And Jesus, we thank you. And we can rejoice and rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, has come to us. And so, Lord, this Christmas, I pray that our faith would be in him and in no one else. That we wouldn't look to other nations and other things and other addictions and other uh, support structures in our lives. I pray that we would look to you, God, as our confidence. That we would look to you as it's on our lips and our celebration, oh God. And I pray, Lord, that you would get all the glory and all the credit for saving imperfect us. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in confidence knowing that you will be with us always, even to the ends of this earth. Father, for any who don't know you today, Lord, I pray that they would cease resisting you, Lord, that we stop pushing you away, that they put their faith in you, Lord, believe in you, the only one who can give them life and forgiveness. And so, Father, we bring these things before you in the name of Jesus, I pray.